Today's plenary session is a special recording where I pool several of the monologues that I've been giving on the YouTube channel into a single audio file. I know some of you only listen to the audio. You're not going to check out YouTube, but you should because YouTube is where I'm going to put out the commentaries in real time. This is a compilation of the last week and a half, maybe. And, uh, well, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you actually check it out on YouTube so you'll see them in real time. But, uh... On that positive note, I think, uh, here you go. You can't test that. This video is about some things that people say you can't test. Well, we have big news this week. It's the Paxlovid Primary Prophylaxis Study. They take people who are exposed to someone in their household with COVID-19, they randomize them to Paxlovid or no Paxlovid, and they ask, does Paxlovid, the drug everyone's a buzz about, prevent you from getting COVID-19? And the verdict is in... It doesn't work at all. It doesn't prevent you from getting COVID-19. Pfizer announced that. Their shares took a bit of a dip. This is the drug that the Biden administration has thrown a lot of money in. Of course, it does has randomized trial data showing that it works. The EPIC-HR study, that's a study of unvaccinated people with a high risk factor for bad outcomes with COVID-19. And they were randomized within five days of symptoms to Paxlovid or not. And it has a 89% relative risk reduction. That's the relative risk. The absolute risk is if you're in that group and you didn't take Paxlovid, you have about a 7% chance of hospitalization or death. And if you did take Paxlovid, it drops to 1%. That's epic HR. We also know about Paxlovid that it failed in the primary prophylaxis study, that it doesn't prevent you from getting SARS-CoV-2 if you encounter somebody who has it. So it's a very interesting drug. Now, Todd Lee and I wrote an article for City Journal. I'm going to put a link below. And we talk about how for the biggest population of people, which is people who've either had and recovered from COVID-19 or they've been vaccinated. And by the way, that's the vast, vast majority of Americans. Do we have data on whether Paxlovid works? Like we know it works in people who are unvaccinated and have a high risk feature. Sure, absolutely it works in that group. That's the Epic HR cohort. We know it doesn't work for this sort of down the road indication, this sort of primary prophylaxis indication. But what about the bulk of the use, the person who's vaccinated, the person who may have had COVID, the person who may not quite have the risk factors for bad outcomes? Does it work there? Well, there was a randomized control trial that for some time enrolled patients like that, the EPIC-SR study, and they put out a press release, but they haven't published the results. So we really don't know. And in the press release, they said that 89%, it wasn't 89%, it was 70%. And the raw numbers were like 2% and change to 0.7% percent, but it included some unvaccinated people in Epic SR. And then they made a protocol amendment saying that they're only going to look at unvaccinated people. But that's a big problem because what we need right now is evidence that Paxlovid works in vaccinated people or people who've gotten one booster or two boosters, like the vice president. It was announced that Kamala Harris is taking Paxlovid, but does it work in someone like her? I don't know about all her potential risk factors, but I do know it's been well documented that she's had the primary vaccination series and a booster or two. So does it work in that population? We have to compel Pfizer to show us that data, run a randomized trial and people vaccinated, people post one booster, show me that it works before we take the public purse and open it up to Albert Borla to take billions of dollars out of that public purse. And that's the theme of our article in City Journal. And the other thing we say is that, look, this medicine costs 500 bucks a round a pop. And that doesn't sound like a lot when you're treating unvaccinated high-risk people, and it isn't a lot in that group. But as you treat people at lower and lower and lower risk, that number of people you have to treat to avert a bad outcome, it's got to go up and up and up and up. And that's best case scenario. You know, that's best case scenario. So what's the return on investment? What's the dollar per quality of adjusted life here of this product? What's the cost effectiveness of it? Are we spending, I don't know, $100,000? 
to do this? Are we spending a million dollars, $10 million? I don't know. We need to see data to make that calculation. And it really does matter because if you start spending 10 million or a hundred million to prevent a hospitalization, there's a lot better things you can do with that money to prevent many, many more hospitalizations. You can improve human health in a lot better ways with that money. It would be cost ineffective if that was a number. So we really need to know and to know you need data so we can do this study. It's not so hard. Pfizer has a lot of cash. It turns out they got a hundred billion reasons they can run this trial this year because that's how much cash we're giving them. They need to be compelled to do it. And that moves me to the second issue that people say, well, you can't do a trial of that. And that's the public intermittent cloth mask mandate. Let me be very clear. The mandate on the BART here in San Francisco that they just reinstated, the mandate on the airplane, it wasn't a Surgical mask mandate? No siree. Because a surgical mask mandate means you had to wear at least a surgical mask or you wouldn't be allowed on that flight. It wasn't that, no. And it wasn't an N95 mask mandate. No, it wasn't that either. It was a cloth mask mandate because that was the minimum requirement that would satisfy, that would satisfy the checks that box. That would, that's all you had to do. And it wasn't a all-the-time mandate. Let's also remember it was an intermittent mandate because if you open that bag of pretzels, you could hang it over one ear and you could eat those pretzels for 45, 50 minutes. If you're in first class, you got a long three-course meal, you could be taking that mask off or putting it under your chin for a prolonged period of time. And the other thing is a lot of people have over the years had attrition and they're using it less effectively than they did when it started. So it's really an intermittent cloth mask mandate. People felt very strongly at the moment we dropped that off in the airplane that even if I'm wearing an N95 or even if the person who's worried is wearing an N95 that the virus is still more likely to spread to them than if we had that intermittent cloth mask mandate. I find it implausible. But I said, look, if you really want to know this, and here in San Francisco, we've reinstated the intermittent cloth mask mandate on the BART. Um, and if you really wanted to know if it was effective, you could do a trial, a cluster randomized trial where you randomize cars or trains or, or planes and flights and to the policy on the flight or not having the policy on the flight. That's the cluster of randomization, the, the container in which people are transported in. That's the cluster. And then you follow them. You follow them two weeks later, three weeks later, six weeks later. Maybe you even actively surveil them if you want, or you could just passively just follow them to see if they get COVID-19. And you'll see whether or not this policy actually works or not. And it would be a very clean and elegant trial. And actually, we really ought to do that study. Well, then somebody sent me a blog post written by an epidemiologist that said that this trial wouldn't be feasible. Well, that person just simply doesn't know enough about randomized controlled trials. It's perfectly feasible. Somebody sent me something where they argue it wouldn't be ethical. Well, that assuming you know the answer to the question because you are so confident it works, but I would be doubting the, eth the ethics of the trial because I'm so confident it probably doesn't work. I mean, I think if you really wanted to test it, you should test something more plausible than an intermittent cloth mask mandate. You might want to test something that you think might putatively work, like a surgical mask mandate or something more strong. I don't know. I mean, I think I would be in the other direction. But the fact that some individuals feel differently about it, that's okay because the ethics of a trial, at least one conception of it, is that we have field-wide equipoise. That doesn't mean that every individual should feel perfectly agnostic about it. It just means that as a community, we admit that there is agnosticism. We just don't know the answer. And that's called field-wide equipoise. As a community, we just don't know. And that is certainly met in this case. It is absolutely met. There are plenty of people who are skeptical of it, doctors, physicians, and there are plenty of people who are rah-rah-rah supporters. But across the board, we just don't know. And I think you can safely make that claim. The other thing I think these people don't get is that we've been here before. We've been here so many times. We've been here with cluster randomized trials of the rapid response team, of uh, swabbing people for multidrug-resistant bacteria, and then putting them on isolation if they test positive versus not doing that. I'm thinking about the randomized trials Merit, Star ICU, 
um, bug with two G's. Um, we've been there. We can do cluster randomized trials. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's been done before. Yes, simply because someone is an epidemiologist means that they know some things about epidemiology, but they may not have experience in cluster randomized design. And so they may think that these things are infeasible, but that's a foolish thing to think. Uh, they're very feasible. They're tractable. They actually have a huge value of information. So this is something called the VOI theory, the value of an information. And the reason to have such a high value of information is this is something that affects so many people and people are willing to pay a certain amount of money to avoid wearing the mask. Um, I saw Professor Abeluk from Yale said he, he thinks the figure is around $50 to avoid mask wearing for a day, um, but it may even be different. I don't know. I mean, people some people may spring for their first class ticket just for uh, a more freedom from masking. But what does that mean? That means that people are willing to pay to not have to do it because they find it inconvenient. Um, and it also means then that providing information about its validity and how well it works would be extremely valuable because we've already said that this is something that we are placing a value on, that we're willing to quantify the value. So how many bad outcomes are we averting versus how much uh, inconvenience and cost are we bearing? This is the world of you know economics and medicine. This is the stock and trade of what we do in policy, make these kinds of calculations. It's nothing new. It's nothing special. And if you think it's new and special, you just haven't been around the block enough. You haven't spend enough time in this field. So what do I want to convey in this video? I want to convey the two core principles. One, we are paying an inordinate amount of money for Paxlovid. We ironically know the least about the most common use, which is the use in somebody who has been vaccinated and is having breakthrough or been vaccinated and boosted and is having breakthrough or has had COVID recover and having COVID again. That's the most common use because the majority we're talking upwards of 70, 80, Perhaps even 90% of Americans are in that category of either had it before or been vaccinated or both. And that's the majority of the use of this product. We don't know the number of people you have to treat in that cohort. We don't know. Even if the product is efficacious in that cohort, we don't know. And now we're reading about that post-Paxlovid rebound when you finish your course and then you stop taking it and people suddenly feel worse. Um, that's being increasingly documented. Is that a product of the fact that the trial you're hanging your hat on only included unvaccinated people who may be presenting a little bit sooner, a little bit differently than a vaccinated person is presenting? And so a vaccinated person five days after symptoms may be slightly different than an unvaccinated person five days after, after symptoms? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's a very relevant question. The only way to answer it is randomized control trials on this question. It's very simple, very simple. You randomize the people you're actually giving the product to for the product or not having the product and you see if it actually works. This is Medicine 101. You randomize cabins of airplanes to this policy or not having this policy and see if it actually works. It's not rocket science. It's basic, basic evidence-based medicine. The opposition, the opposition, people opposed to this or they say it's not possible. I don't know what to think. I mean, one, I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and just assuming that they're ignorant. Their ignorance is carrying the day and their ignorance is broad because throughout medicine, people have often been ignorant about the role and importance of randomized control trials. But worse is they're just maybe even true believers. They're not even scientists anymore. They're just kind of tribal true believers. They don't even want to adjudicate uncertainty. And I think it might be a, a poisonous mix of both. Um, and then the third reason, of course, is it's part of their identity. We've linked this to political party and ironically, when science fails to generate evidence, of course, politics will move in. It, it just moves in. And we have two very strong political anchors on this policy. But it didn't have to be that way. We could have run the trials to adjudicate the uncertainty. And so I think it's just a fiasco. It's a total failure. I want to look into the camera and talk to the person who may watch this video 500 years from now. 500 years from now, I want you to know that, you know, we... 
are pretty ignorant and stupid. We could have done the study. We could have answered the question. We didn't do it. And we didn't do it. I don't know why we didn't. We had all the resources and tools, and there were plenty of people calling for it. John Yonides called for it. Uh, 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 Margaret McCarthy called for doing these simple pragmatic randomized trials. Alistair Monroe has written some lovely threads about this. Many people, many thoughtful people called for it, but the powers that be, the forces of the world would not conduct those studies. And so we failed and we prove ourselves to be as ignorant and primitive as the people who came before us and faced the many great plagues of Europe and they didn't generate any evidence either. Maybe we were a little bit better because we could kind of count some things about the virus. Maybe we were a little bit better because we had a slightly better understanding of germ theory, but we weren't a lot better. We didn't use the power of randomization. Some of our counting was inaccurate. Our CDC wasn't quite good about counting. We didn't share data. And so we're pretty primitive and ignorant too. And so if you're watching 400 years from now, you know, some of us knew this at the time. At least, at least some of us knew it. At least some of us knew that we were inadequate and primitive and we could have done better. I mean, I'm pretty confident we could have done better. So I hope you're doing better in the future. I hope you're running cluster randomized control trials, meticulous counting of cases, putting that data all publicly available, transparent in real time, not these one-week delays. I hope that you have finally separated your CDC from a policy arm to a data gathering and publishing arm, publishing arm and not put it together, which is inherently a conflict of interest. I hope that you have finally firewalls between your politicians and the people who work at FDA and people aren't pressured to resign over White House pressure on boosters, etc. I hope you're doing better in the future. Um, and just want to let you know that, you know, some of us did understand it at the time. So, all right. If you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Until next time. Big news today. Moderna has put in for the EUA, the big EUA for kids under the age of six, six months to six years old. They're asking the FDA, give us the emergency use authorization. We want to be able to deliver our product. It's 25 micrograms times two. And they have the results of their randomized control trial, Kid Cove. And basically what it finds is in the two different age groups, a 51% reduction in centrally confirmed RT-PCR COVID and a 37% reduction. But the 95% confidence interval for, for both of those goes down below 30. And one, it goes to 21, and the other goes to 13%. And that's a wide confidence interval that dips pretty low. So there's going to be a lot of things to talk about. Number one, when we set off on this journey towards SARS-CoV-2 vaccinations, the FDA was pretty clear in guidance that they wanted to see from a vaccine an improvement in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 of at least 50%. Show me a 15%, 50% vaccine efficacy. And also make sure that the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval is above 30%. That will give you some confidence that it's at least that good. And that's important because the moment you debut a vaccine, if it's very, very poor vaccine efficacy, you actually could get a paradoxical problem when risk compensation goes through the roof immediately thereafter. And I think John Unides talked about that in his lecture video in, in this channel and uh, on, my, on my podcast. But back to this point. Right now, there's a fraction of parents who are really, really keen and eager for this. And if I were to guess how big that fraction is, I would guess it's probably one in five. It's about 20%. And the reason I guess that number is that's very similar to the number that had the rapid uptake for kids 5 to 11. It's probably around the same kind of parents. But that means 80% of parents are the kind of let's see how this goes kind of space. And so that 20% is quite vocal on social media. But the 80%, let's not forget about those people. And the 20% really wants this vaccine available, and Moderna is filing that EUA. And this is different than what the regulators had said. The regulators said, we're not going to wait. We're going to wait until the summer and look at Moderna and Pfizer side by side. And they may still pull it off. They may still do so. We shall see. And I think they like that idea because the Pfizer series is three micrograms times three, and Moderna is 25 times two. And so they might be wondering if, as in adolescence, 
In the adolescent situation, it is clear that Pfizer has a better adverse event profile for an adolescent boy than Moderna. And they might be wondering what the adverse event profile will be in this age and if there's a difference. And I don't know if it's product dependent or dose dependent, but they might be wondering that. And so that's probably why they want to see it side by side. They're also probably aware at the FDA that the actual risk to a child in this age range is actually very, very low. I know we feel like it's so high, but often the vaccinated and boosted parent has still a higher risk of bad outcomes from SARS-CoV-2 than the child. And one thing makes that even lower, which is we have CDC estimate in the last week that the seroprevalence in kids is really high. It's like 75% now in the CDC's new study. And, you know, that's just one study. It could be a little bit lower, it could be a little bit higher depending on the study you do. That's very high, and you always ask yourself in biomedicine, am I able to make someone better off? And the old saying is, it's hard to make a healthy person better off. And another saying is, you know, it's hard to make somebody who's had and recovered from an illness even better off by vaccinating for that illness they just had and recovered for. I think that's very hard. And so the absolute benefits might get smaller and smaller as the population has pre-existing immunity. And we know that from a number of studies that show people who've had COVID and cleared COVID are much less likely to get so sick from COVID the second time or third time they get COVID. So put all this together, and I think you have a very important regulatory decision. I think if the FDA was sticking to what they said initially, they might be reticent about this approval because the conference interval crosses the boundary that they set. And in one case, the point estimate of efficacy is below what they said they wanted. But the FDA might be more permissive and they might say, you know, what we're doing here is what people call an immunobridging strategy. Immunobridging. People keep talking about this. I'm not sure they know what it means, but here's what it means. It means you do your first randomized control trial in adults and you showed me you improved symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, check, they did it, check, they did it, Pfizer and Moderna. Then, as you go down in age, I'm, a lot, I'm gonna let you have it if you merely show non-inferior geometric mean antibody titers. I'm gonna let you have that approval if you show me that you are getting those antibodies comparable to what you get in adults. I'm not asking you to prove anymore that, impro that improves uh, symptomatic disease. I'm not even asking you to show severe disease reduction. And I think that's a bit of a gamble. I mean, it makes sense if those studies occur like immediately thereafter the primary study. But as you get further and further away, a year out or even longer, and basically you're dealing with slightly different disease because now we have Omicron and we didn't have that back in the, you know, the immediate aftermath of the first approval. You have to wonder if those antibodies mean the same thing. And you have to wonder if it mean the same thing in kids. And so I think it's a lot of uncertainty. It's just a classic surrogate endpoint in medicine. A surrogate endpoint is an endpoint a patient didn't know mattered until the doctor said it mattered. Like you didn't know your A1C mattered or you didn't know your LDL cholesterol mattered until the doctor told you it mattered. And you didn't know your geometric mean antibody titer against the spike protein mattered until the FDA told you it mattered. It's not something you feel. And it's problematic because not that surrogate endpoints are always wrong. They're often faithful and useful. It's that they're not always faithful and useful. And the trouble is we don't know which side is which time is which. And this will lead to a lot of consternation at the FDA. Now I see people writing long threads where they say immunobridging has been proven to be successful. They're just making things up. I mean, you know, we just don't have data to render a firm conclusion on the immunobridging regulatory strategy. That would require huge randomized control trials to confirm that the immunobridging was true. They're, they hang their hat on observational studies, but the observational studies they're citing are studies in older people that actually don't apply to the immunobridging question. That's one. Some observational studies that do apply to the question are grievously confounded with the classic confounding that the kid who's rushed to the doctor's office to get that shot is very different than the kid whose parents are reticent, and it's not randomly allocated, and so you can't separate the the, the parent protection cocoon effect 
from the vaccine effect. And if you make those kind of comparisons, they're notoriously unreliable and flawed. And yet I see people make those comparisons. They make those comparisons. But you have to acknowledge that the beauty of randomization is we all know that there are vastly different attitudes about COVID-19 risk. It's like the old George Carlin bit, which is that anyone who drives faster than you on a freeway is a maniac and everyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. And we all feel that way about our own personal choices. Like, you know, I'm happy to go to restaurants. I'm happy to go to dinner parties. Other people might like to go to dinner parties, but not restaurants, or they might test before they go. You know, everyone has their own speed and they all think the people who do more than they are maniacs and the people who do less are idiots. I think people feel that way. So when you have this bias that, the parental behavior may be different. You just cannot separate the vaccine effect from the types of people who are seeking it out. And that's a problem with the fourth dose studies. That's a problem with all these observational studies. And to say immunobridging has been validated is a foolish thing to say because we just don't know that to be true. I think it's clear that the 20% of people who are keen and eager on getting this vaccine really, really want it. And so they're happy to see, you know, with rose-colored glasses, these data. But the 80% of people who want data and more data and are reluctant are unlikely to be persuaded. And I'm very curious what the FDA does because I think they really do want to see Pfizer and Moderna side by side before they make a decision. And I think Moderna wants to press them to make a decision quick so that they can get the market share. Um, but I think if I were running the FDA, I would probably wait to see both side by side and have a couple of important um, advisory meetings to let all these data be heard. And I think we should have a broad discussion about it because with 75% of people who've already had COVID and recovered, it's going to be very hard to make those kids better off. They're already probably, I mean, not just probably, they are, in fact, marvelously protected against the fact that if they got COVID a second time, that they would be hospitalized. They already had sort of great odds going into it. A healthy child, a healthy child who's already had and recovered from COVID has even better odds if they were to meet COVID again. Um, and, and that's data from uh, Shemez Ladani, who came on this podcast and talked about a UK data. So those are my thoughts on this. It's going to be a very important regulatory thing. You know, some people say like, well, you know, what do you expect would happen to antibodies over time if we didn't do this? I was like, listen, this is not how drug regulation works. You don't tell yourself a, a Rudyard Kipling's just so story of why the giraffe has a long neck. You have to actually figure out your target population and run a randomized trial and show me a benefit. That's how regulatory science works. We can all tell stories. You can tell a story why it works. And I can tell a story why it doesn't work, but we need data, not stories. So if you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Until next time. It's official. Elon Musk buys Twitter and the world erupts in, well, all sorts of emotions, mixed emotions. I'm going to walk through my thoughts on this topic. Of course, Elon Musk needs no introduction, and he's done a lot of things from PayPal to Tesla to SpaceX, you name it. But when it comes to Twitter, what is he all about? Why did he buy this company? Why is he taking it private? Well, in every interview he's ever done on this topic, he is pretty clear what his goals are. He thinks that in the modern ecosystem, the town square no longer is that physical piece of land you would go to. The town square is a social media platform like Facebook or Twitter. And Twitter is increasingly the town square of the elites. So whether we like it or not, the newspaper reporters are there, the people who work in government are there, the people in the academy are there. They're all there on Twitter, giving their opinion and soaking in the opinion of others. And so Elon thinks it's an important place. I think he's right about that. And he thinks, of course, that what you want to have in a town square like this is you want to have a culture of free speech. I'll talk about the difference between the First Amendment and the culture of free speech. So I'll separate those two. He wants a culture of free speech where people feel like they can say what they're actually thinking and make the argument and they can sometimes be right and sometimes be wrong and confront each other and disagree and have a spirit of debate. He's pretty clear about that in all of his interviews. I think 
that many people are right, that what he means by that is that people who have an important role, like even former presidents like Donald Trump, who've been booted off the platform, he's probably going to allow them back on the platform and allow a lot of people to say some things that the platform has hitherto not allowed. So he believes in the culture of free speech, and he wants to promote that. And I think he thinks that's important for democracy. So let's talk about this. Of course, my bias is that I interpret a lot of this through COVID-19. And when it comes to COVID-19, there has been censorship and the heavy hand of big tech. Of course, censorship is one thing that the idea that you literally cannot talk about some topic or the other, but there are many, many insidious ways big technology companies can censor or things short of censoring speech or content or ideas. Those things could be, as uh, someone pointed out recently, I think this was Jay Bhattacharya, that somebody could like a tweet of his but then the next day it wouldn't register that they liked it, it would be unliked, or that somebody could retweet something a lot, but not as many people would see it as if it had the more favorable or palatable content. Sometimes things can be shadow banned, so you don't see the replies for some people unless you click on that little thing at the bottom, or that some things show up less likely in rankings and preferences. And so the algorithms and these companies have tremendous power because they decide not only what are the things you absolutely cannot talk about, but also... How much can we nudge it upward and downward, the things we want you to see more of and see less of? And I think Elon Musk has a problem with that. Now, that's in contrast with a speech given last week by President Obama, former President Obama, about the importance of big tech in disinformation, misinformation, and the need for big tech to crack down on perverse and false ideas. He thinks that that's a good idea. We ought to do that. I want to separate a few things here. One, I think many times people get sucked into, well, you know, does the free speech, does the First Amendment apply to Twitter, et cetera, et cetera? It's a private company. It's not government, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, the First Amendment is that government cannot infringe upon the speech of others. It's not that a private company can't regulate the sorts of things that it allows to be said on that platform. That's true. But America has always had the First Amendment. But it's also had a broader culture of free speech. And what does that mean? That means that, you know, if somebody's doing their job and they happen to come in and they disagree with you on some political issue or some social issue and, you know, you say, okay, that's not a big deal. They're doing their job fine. We disagree on this issue. There's probably other people who disagree. I don't have to listen to everything they have to say. I can walk away from conversations I don't want to hear, but I'm not going to go out of my way to make a big deal out of it and to try to demonize this person and get this person fired, etc. Well, that culture has shifted a lot. You know, we still have the First Amendment, but the culture is very different now. You know, I always say that when I was in college, we didn't have the time or the energy to even know too much about who's speaking and certainly not the energy or an interest to protest them. We had better things to do, like... Go get some drinks and have fun with friends. But now it seems like people have so much energy to protest somebody. Somebody says one little thing. You see a snapshot of it. You don't want to link to the full article or post because you don't want to encourage people to go there and possibly see that there's some nuance or that might not be exactly what they meant in the broader context. You don't allow the audience to do that. You just say it's bad. Thousands of people pile on and instantly it's about who, where does this person work? Who is this person? Where do they live? What do they do? How can we put pressure on them to make their life miserable? That's... Not a culture of free speech. That's not the American culture. That's a really strange, uh, puritanical, vengeful culture that nobody likes. Nobody likes that, you know? And I think people on every side of every issue um, has been a victim of that. And I don't think any people, I don't think many people like it. 
I think some people think it's an effective tactic for change, the change that they want. I think they're really misguided because what they are achieving is a set of Pyrrhic victories. It looks as if things are going your way because you've knocked a few people out of jobs because they disagree with views you hold. But what you really are doing is seeding a deep undercurrent of resentment against your own view, and it's very likely to come back and whip you in the face very soon. So when you really oppose a culture of free speech, I think what you do is you drive ideas you disagree with into the underground, and then they fester and they they grow and they gain adherence, and when they have a moment and a moment of strength, they will vote for a person who strongly disagrees with you, and I'll set the agenda the other way. They'll do things just to screw with you because they don't like the way you've been treating them. I've always felt that if you really want to get somebody to come around on your policy position, you got to persuade them, and that isn't easy. That often requires listening to what they have to say, even when you disagree with it. You know, I've spent so many times listening to people who thought pharmaceutical drug pricing was A-OK, just to understand, you know, why do they think that? Why do they believe that? And every once in a while, they'd give me a clue. Well, I believe that because we think, and they'd say what it is, we think that if you lower the price, you'd stifle innovation or something like that. And then you can take that little nugget. Oh, they think that, don't they? Well, let me think of a way, a clever way, that I might use available data to show them that that is wrong. They're misguided about it. And every so often, when you do it really well, you actually do change their mind. And you know, to preserve their ego, often people don't admit that you changed their mind. They just act like they believed what you told them all along. They revise their understanding of what happened. So I think that's the importance of a free culture of speech where we can say what we want and we don't always persecute people, even if they don't say exactly what we want. And we're also the right, you know, the right to ignore, which is a right that is, you know, underused these days. If you somebody says something you disagree with, you hate it, you don't like it, the best thing you can do is ignore it. It'll die a silent death because people are talking all the time in the world of online and very few things are gaining a lot of traction. So I think Elon actually does like many people from the original wave of the internet, believe in truly uncensored free speech, that people can say things that, you know, you think are wrong or stupid or you disagree with, and that should be permitted. And we can't use the heavy hand of the platform to squelch it. I think President Obama's remarks suggest that he thinks the opposite. He thinks these platforms have an important role to shape that. But what I always ask myself, for the people who hold President Obama's view, which I would disagree with, I always ask myself, you know, right now things are going in your direction. Let's be honest, the majority of tech workers at these companies are on your team. They're on the liberal team. They're on the liberal side of things, as am I, by the way. You know, I'm on that side too. We're all on the same side and things are going our way and the things we believe in are getting more and more traction, it appears, on the platforms and we're censoring the things that we don't like and we're censoring the people we don't like. You know, the past presidents from the other party get censored more than the past presidents from our party. Sure, things are going our way. But what will happen if it ever flipped? What will happen if we weren't the ones who were running the companies and then the other side had more people in the companies or the other side had somehow had a strong government position and they made impositions on the platform and they said, we're going to help. We're going to step in and help you out a little bit on what's misinformation. We'll tell you what's misinformation. And the moment you imagine what would happen if the other side, the side that you disagree with, held that power, you start to see why this is a very dangerous power. Because what is information and misinformation is very, very gray. Of course, there's black and white examples. We can always think of the black and white, but life is the gray. And, you know, information, people always say, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, you're not entitled to your old facts. What they don't realize is that opinions and facts are much more similar than you think because the way in which you frame a fact, what is your numerator? What is your denominator? How are you making the comparison? What's the precise way you're framing the question? That is all part of your own bias and your view and often riddled with your opinion. And so two people can present facts, but one fact can be very misleading and then the other fact can be very true. And a misleading fact can often be as malicious as something that's just categorically wrong. But how do you separate misleading facts from things that are categorically wrong to think 
things that, well, are kind of true, but there's unpleasant truths to things that are cherry-picked, etc. And the answer is, it's impossible. That's the gray of life. That's why we need to have the free discourse and the debates so that we can hear it all and try to think of ways to poke holes in the other side's argument. But the moment you allow the platform to have the brute force to exterminate or extinguish things that the platform or the people who run the platform in the moment think are wrong, you know, you, you, you give a great power to them. And what happens is when things are going your way, as President Obama may feel, like the platform will probably make things better for us, um, I think it's easy to be seduced by that. But imagine what happens when your political opponent gets a hold of that power. They can easily use it against you and against you and against you. And the thing is, just a little bit of this power, and you can create a spiral where you just solidify your own power, stay in power, change the narrative, change the narrative, stay in power, and thus you have cemented a permanent legacy of power. And that's the worry. That's the worry. That's what happens when you don't have a culture of free speech. Now, when it comes to COVID-19, why do I think this is salient? Because people spoke in very grandiose terms. Everything was misinformation or disinformation. I make a joke that, you know, Trump was the first actually to coin fake news. Whenever he said he saw something that conflicted with what he wanted people to believe or that was not a palatable fact about him, he said, that's fake news. That's fake news. Your fake news organization just putting out your fake news. And so fake news, noun, it is information that prevents Republicans from winning. Well, now on the other side, there's misinformation and disinformation. Noun, information that prevents Democrats from winning. And a lot of the things that people say were misinformation were no such thing. They were just things that people found inconvenient, such as, is it possible that this virus that appeared in Wuhan, the city with the laboratory, might have escaped from the laboratory? Is that even possible? And they said, you know what? Uh, it's racist to even assume that it, it even suggests that it's possible. We shouldn't really even talk about it. We shouldn't investigate it. And that dialogue is squelched. We're not allowing you to talk about it. That's what Facebook said. And of course, then Don McNeil, the reporter, Nick Wade, broke these really big stories where they said, look, there's more to this than just the categorical. This is wrong to even entertain. And that's a huge, important moment. That's a cataclysmic moment. That one instance should give us all pause that the culture of free speech is really, really important. Now, this isn't government prohibition on speech. It's Facebook prohibiting what's on their own private platform. But it's against the culture of free speech that they would do such a thing. And it was a huge error. We lost one year of a needed dialogue. We literally prevented people from talking about that in the town square. And that's a huge problem. And we saw this for so many other things. I think it was angry cardiologist who made a tweet comparing vaccine-induced myocarditis from COVID-induced myocarditis. That tweet was marked as misleading by the brilliant folks at Twitter, of course, but it was later found to be 100% correct and supported by publications in Nature Medicine. And a preprint that's based on that publication, at least in some age groups and for some doses and for some products. Is it correct overall? That's a very tough question. But, you know, you need to have that discussion so you can see we're we're talking about Moderna. We're talking about dose two. We're talking about a 28-day delay for dose two, and we're talking about an 18-year-old man. And then, and that's under that circumstance, angry cardiologist tweet is correct. Okay, you know. And then we're also talking about what is the definition of myocarditis. That's also something that people can reasonable people can disagree on. Do you need to see MRI abnormalities? Is it okay to have demand ischemia in the setting of critical illness? Is that a COVID-induced myocarditis, or is that merely demand ischemia in the setting of critical illness? These are nuances to this. Who are these platforms to decide? They don't have, I mean, no platform could ever possibly employ smart enough people to police all these things because these things are very, very technical. And as somebody who spent, you know, 
15 years in biomedicine, working his way up the academic ladder, I can tell you that there are a lot of things that are much grayer than people think, from cancer screening to genomics to vaccine policies to all these broad social things. There is nuance. It is uncertain. There is gray. You need to allow people to talk about these things. And I think that's what Elon grasps. And that's why I think... You know, do I know he's going to do a perfect job? No. But am I pleased with the principles he's espoused? Yes. And if I must say to my liberal colleagues, and of course, I must address, you know, that that's the key issue. I think they're the ones who have put up the most resistance about what Elon will do. And I think they're the ones who it's currently in the zeitgeist that they believe that if we allow the platforms to prohibit some types of speech, it will work to create the type of speech that we like and the type of progress that we want to see. I think that's how they feel, genuinely. And I urge them to think beyond the present moment. I think it's true. In the present moment, you do have the alignment among these companies and among these points of view. You will get what you think you'll get, but that moment won't be there forever. And I can promise you the first thing a shrewd tactician on the other side will think is, this is not going well for us. They are censoring things preferentially that hurt our political cause. You know, we'll wait our time. We'll wait for that moment that we come into political power. And then we're going to pass a new law that says, you know what, we need direct government enforcement of these companies and algorithms. And we're going to have government help these algorithms decide what's truth and fiction. And they're going to very quickly flip it the other way around. And so when I see things like the Surgeon General say, you know, we can go help Facebook identify the miscreants and the misinformation people, be very careful if you think a White House official should be telling Facebook who the misinformation people are, because guess what's going to happen? The moment it's somebody that you don't want in there, they're going to do the same thing. But Who's to say they're going to play by any rules at all? They're going to do whatever they think is best. Just like you, to some degree, do whatever you think is best. And you have ignored a lot of real things, such as, you know, the moment vaccine effectiveness goes very low, the ethical case for mandates dissipates. And yet that's something that people want to push back on, you know? So I think you got to be very careful. There's no such thing as a true fact. I think that's a misconception about science. I wish there were the case that we would all agree on the sensible numerators denominators. I personally think that, you know, the reason that my arguments are sometimes compelling is that I actually try to articulate good reasons for why I'm picking my premises, but we can all pick our premises. And that's part of what it means to be science, to convince others that the way you have framed the question is also important and valid. And in fact, a lot of science is, a lot of the really tough stuff in science is that you literally frame the questions in that space. And as someone who's done a lot of work in sort of surrogate validity, I can tell you that probably people won't even recognize, but some of those papers that we did on surrogate validity has literally framed the way every single person, both proponent and critic of my work, thinks about that issue. We have literally got them thinking on the landscape that we wanted them to think on. We framed the rules for that debate. And that's really important. That's a powerful thing. But you need a fair ground for that. You need a platform for that. That's part of what it means to be a scientist. And that's part of the scientific process, actually, framing the way in which we conceptualize science. And if you give these platforms the power to decide who's the winner and who's you know wrong, they're not just going to be calling balls and strikes. There's no such thing. They're going to be defining what the strike zone is, and they're going to be constantly shifting that. And I think it's really problematic. And so what do I think about Elon? I mean, we will find out what he's going to do. But if he intends to do what he said he's going to do, which is that he believes this is an important space, this is the space people speak in now, and that, you know, we are going to have to have a light touch and err on the side of letting things stay there, 
then I think he's probably right. Even if that means I also will end up seeing things that I also don't like. You know, I'm happy to do that. And by the way, these people who pretend, as I have to say, the people who pretend that you go on Twitter and you, you never encounter something you don't like, have you used that? The whole thing is things you don't like to see or read. Somehow the algorithm might even be preferentially suggesting things you hate to you to gain your attention, but it's full of garbage all the time. So the, the little bits of garbage you think they can somehow sweep up, uh, good luck with that. Um, it's much more likely to be abused than it is to be of any validity. So Elon, I think, has the right sentiment. Will he be able to carry it through? I don't know. I'm willing to give him a shot. Um, will someone else? W- would it have been worse without him? Almost surely, yes. We saw the direction Twitter was going. Um, do, are people going to quit the platform? I doubt it. You know, they talk a big game. I'm going to quit. And, you know, just like I, you know, I was guilty of saying that if the people I don't like get elected, I'm going to leave the country. But it's a lot harder to do that when you actually have to face that decision. And the truth is that the platform and the reason he bought it, I suspect, is he realizes it has a bit of a founder effect advantage. So many people use it, and so it has already gained in the popular consciousness. It's hard to totally displace it with something novel. Um, so I'm excited to see what he's going to do. I'll give him a shot. You know, I- I'm not forced to use it. I can go elsewhere. But I do think, and the only reason I stay, is that it is the one social media tool that is preferentially seen by people in the media and people in the academy. And it is important to try to influence that, even if sometimes you feel like it's an uphill task, because it was for parts of the pandemic, but it's changing. The dynamic is constantly shifting. And sometimes you start to get your wins. And history is long. And it often is self corrective. And so we might yet see some progress on these issues. And those are the issues that I think are important. I don't know everything about all issues, but I know a lot about biomedicine and about medical evidence, and that's what I think is most important. And I was upset with the way in which the scientific dialogue was curtailed by these companies that just don't have the ability to referee these kinds of debates. So those are my thoughts on this issue. Those are my thoughts on, you know, the First Amendment, which is a very narrow thing that applies to some things, and a broader American culture of free speech that, you know, when I was growing up in the 1980s, we embraced. We actually thought it was a good thing. And I can't tell you how many times when I was in my teens and 20s that I heard somebody say something that I thought was offensive, either to me or to someone else, and it was a little bit tone deaf or out of out of place, and some things were just wrong and absurd, and some things were, you know, terrible. But I just cannot even recall an instance where I or anyone I ever knew actually went out of their way to try to make life harder for such a person. They realize that, you know, this person, although clueless and tone deaf and maybe a buffoon, um, they represent other people. And, you know, I guess, you know, if I really cared deeply about this issue, I'd have to try to figure out a way to flip some of these votes. Um, but going and pursuing one person with vigor to make their life difficult, uh, to to block them on this platform, to throw them off the platform, to silence them, to get them fired from their job. That's just a waste of my time and also not productive for anything I believe in. We used to think that, and now somehow we are totally warped. I don't know where people get the time to even in, to investigate or care. You know, I just don't understand how, how you could even have such time. Maybe I'm just too busy with other things. But, you know, that's the demise of the culture of free speech, and I think Elon is trying to push that back. And so... Godspeed. You know, I wish you the best. I wish he does it. I hope he does it. I hope he does a good job. And I hope he, um, you know, does what he said he's going to do, have a light touch. And I hope people realize and I that, well, I hope the pendulum swings on this issue, actually. I hope that the cultural pendulum swings and we all realize that, you know what, having some people be wrong sometimes and some people say things we don't agree with is much better than living in a world where some third party of unnamed entity decides what's truth and fiction. It's much better to let people be wrong than allow and trust this power to people who aren't qualified to wield it. And of course, the power will rapidly be misused. So that's what you get on this channel. These kinds of analyses, like, subscribe, comment, 
comment below. You know, I have been looking at that recently. I see some interesting things. Leave a message. Um, follow this channel. Send this video to a friend. You know, recommend this channel. Check out the podcast plenary session, the audio version. There's some other stuff in there occasionally. Go to my Substack and subscribe. I had a long piece on this Obama speech. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, and uh, I think that's it. If you're interested in the academic papers, you can go to my Twitter account, VK Prasad Lab, and look through that. I also have a website, myname.com, papers tab. We try to keep all the published papers available there. There should be over 300 there for you to peruse, mostly about cancer, drug policy, evidence-based medicine. All right, on that positive note, until next time. Recently, we've been seeing a lot of doctor-on-doctor -doctor hate, and by that I mean some doctors who disagree with other doctors turn to Twitter to hate on them. And what's interesting to me is they disagree about substantive health policy issues, but they're not talking about the issues, they're talking about the other person. This person is unqualified, or this person is bad, or let me screenshot this person and take a little excerpt of what they say and get all my followers to pounce. This is the dialogue we're having. And Dr. Lena Wen really turned to Twitter today and she pointed out that, hey, I'm getting a lot of hate, and I'm gonna have to start blocking some of y'all. And I think, you know, even that, people couldn't even deal with. They replied, well, you know, you deserve it because we disagree with you strongly, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I have to say about this issue. Number one, do I agree with Dr. Lena Wen on everything? Absolutely not. You know, I think for much of this pandemic, I was on the other side of issues. I thought schools being closed was a big problem. I thought draconian lockdowns were wrong. You know, I was on the other side of these issues. She has come around lately. In the last few months, I think she is really on my page talking about how COVID is something we're going to have to live with, how breakthrough is inevitable, how we need to find a way of coexisting between life and the virus. We got to get back to things. Wearing an N95 in perpetuity might not work, and draconian public health measures, making people do things under force of law may not make sense anymore. So, you know, she's on my side of these issues, so I'm happy to hear her talk about them and push that agenda on outlets like CNN, where she's a contributor. But, you know, there are other people who dislike that, particularly the people who are staunch zero COVID, COVIDians, you know, on that side of the spectrum. And I guess I can understand why you disagree. Them listening to her would be me listening to somebody who thinks, you know, it's a great idea to mask two-year-olds in perpetuity. I would say, you know, you have no credible evidence. It's against the World Health Organization. You know, the data we do have from Spain and from Finland suggested probably doesn't do much in kids. But, you know, if they feel otherwise, I wouldn't love to hear what they say. But I would think about how to advance my own agenda. And one way I could advance my agenda is to screenshot them and talk about them and create fake accounts or whatever all these things are doing to Lena Wen and attack her or attack them. Um, but that wouldn't really advance my agenda. I want to persuade other people of the wisdom of my policy agenda and get people on my side. And I think a much better way to achieve that would be for me to push and to and to write on the issue I care about and try to advance that argument. And in fact, that's what I do. Make these videos, write a substack. By the way, you should follow the Substack. I write a number of op-eds, maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 op-eds. publish a lot of papers, some in the works. I think of ways in which I can take what I think is the right policy ideas and get other people to see the wisdom of it. And I think it's a distraction to focus on the other person. You know, there are lots of people out there who think masking a two-year-old is a great idea. There are lots of people out there who are vehemently angry that we've taken away the cloth mask when you're not eating or drinking on an airplane mandate. And I think it's probably not a big deal that we took away that mandate because, as I'm noted, there is a big exemption in there for the Eating and Drinking Act, which could be up to 50 minutes, an hour, and first class could be two hours. 
are you really telling me that making somebody wear a flimsy cloth mask that doesn't work in a cluster randomized trial in Bangladesh pre-vaccine and pre-natural infection somehow works on an airplane when they only wear it spottily and sporadically and other people who wish to can wear an N95? I find that to be highly incredible that that would be a claim you offer. Yet, I wouldn't get far if I just focused on the individuals who hold some of these views and keep talking about them. I think it's much better to confront the issue head on and show why the issue is absurd, and that's what I've tried to do on any issue I care about from school closure, etc., etc. Dr. Lena Wen is somebody who I didn't always agree with, and when I didn't agree with her, I tried to think about ways I could advance my own argument without ever having to mention her because it wasn't about her. She's not the master of the universe. She didn't set all the rules. There's all these other people involved, and she has ideas that are similar to lots of other people. And that's true if, even in this moment, even when she agrees with me, and yet I see on social media, people keep attacking her and they're attacking Monica and, you know, it goes on and on. And she finally said today, hey, listen, I've had enough. You know, we need to have some sort of civil ground rules. But to me, I think that there's another thing that we don't talk about, which is one, one is the simple fact, which is how do you advance an argument and persuade people? The more you make it about individuals, the more... I think people do get fatigued and they really sort of wonder like, is this a petty squabble? Do you have a history together? Do you dislike each other for other reasons? And often those things are true. There is a backstory to it and people are jealous or, or whatever. Um, one of the things that people toss her way is that, you know, she somehow lacks the credentials to have these opinions. Um, you know, she was the former public health commissioner of Baltimore City, which is kind of a big public health job. So, you know, even when I disagreed with her, I never would have thought to say she lacked the credential to have her point of view. I just thought her point of view was wrong. And now that I agree with her a lot, you know, I also think it's not because she was the public health commissioner, but I certainly think she has every right to air her opinion and good for her for pushing it on such a broad platform. But the first point, if you disagree with someone, I think it's almost really not very useful to you to pursue the individual, push the argument, think about ways, the holes of the argument. I mean, Right now, I guess the issue du jour is this uh, airplane mask mandate, and many people are up in arms. Um, they say things like, um, you know, even if I wear the N95, it works better if you also wear a cloth mask. Really? You know, I tried to track down, like, why they feel so strongly about this. It seems quite incredible to me that the respirator works better if that person over there kind of partially sometimes wears the cloth mask on the airplane. Um and the best I could find is a PNAS paper that kind of models what might happen if particles are in the air. It has nothing to do with reality. And I couldn't find any studies that had anything to do with reality that would actually persuade me that that claim is true. I find it to be highly uh, incredible, a highly incredible claim. And I think a lot of people do. And if you had common sense and you look around an airplane, you would think that this is probably not doing a whole heck of a lot. Anyway, but the next point. The next point is about doctors. What does it say? You know, we talk about this trust in public health and people are constantly worried that it's the Joe Rogans of the world that are poisoning the trust in public health. And what I would say to that is, I think public health has done more to damage public health than Joe Rogan has done to damage public health. Now, Joe Rogan has some points of view that I agree with and some points of view disagree with. I wrote an article in Unheard Magazine where I unpacked the two. He's had some guests I agree with more and some guests I agree with less and some guests I might agree not at all with. Um, you know, that's the nature of the business. But that's not where distrust comes from. One big category of distrust is that public health has used brute force even without knowing for sure. And today somebody asked, you know, what is the trade-off? You know, how many people have to wear a cloth mask on an airplane to prevent a transmission event? And I said, if you're perfectly honest and no one has any clue because the CDC and NIAID failed 
They fail society. They fail future societies because they never ran any studies. So nobody has any idea of what the trade-off is. I suspect the trade-off is really, really poor because the effect size is probably as close to zero as possible. But you need to know the trade-off to have a policy discussion. But when they nonetheless implement the mandate and make it last for, you know, long periods of time, years on end, when they mask two-year-olds without any data, when they compel boosters and 20-year-old men who have just had Omicron recovered, these are kind of the places where it does seem like there's a live debate. People disagree. Smart people disagree. Um, maybe that policy is not so wise. But they're nonetheless using the brute force of government to push on these policies. And that, to me, will breed distrust because it's one thing to use power in places of massive consensus, but to use power and compel people to do things in places of substantive disagreement by good faith experts who really all are interested in, in the, the betterment of society, that is a heavy handedness that is going to create a backlash. And the other thing I think does it is this kind of rhetoric. People see the kind of attacks on Lena Wen. By the way, the same people who were like cheering her on three months ago when, you know, they liked her closed schools preemptively Omicron stance. Now they're tearing her down, you know. Um, the kind of vitriol, the hate, the animosity, um, even when people kind of try to apologize to her for acting incivil and like fools, uh, they say things like, well, you know, of course, what you are doing is very harmful to other people. Listen, listen. In a public health crisis, of course, when people disagree about policy, they both agree that the goal is to maximize human welfare. The disagreement is what actually works or doesn't work. That's the disagreement. It's not the goal. The, nobody's thinking the goal is to like harm human beings. They're thinking about human welfare, maybe in different ways, prioritizing different values, but they are trying to maximize what they see as the good. No one is trying to maximize what they see as the evil or wrong. And so for you to say that, well, she deserves this because her view is harmful, it really begs the question. What she's saying is that she fundamentally disagrees that your policy perspective will lead to the betterment of society. Ergo, your view is harmful and you don't see her acting that way to you, even though she could easily make that argument. So that's a very silly thing to say. And yet you see it. The stakes will always be high. And they're particularly high when the doctors themselves may have anxiety and are afraid and scared about their own mortality. And um, I get it. But I also think you can have an unreasonable fear. I mean, you can have a pathologic fear of mortality. And I think I see some of that where people talk about the extreme measures they're taking to protect very young, healthy children who we know from many data sets have very low risk of the virus on par with risks kids have always been exposed to year after year, decade after decade. Now suddenly you're really worried. Well, if you were that worried, you shouldn't have allowed them to go to school in the winter in 1997 or 1998. And you should have been very cognizant and reluctant to allow them to go on long car rides in 2004. But we weren't that way. So why are we that way now, even though the risks are often commensurate between these kinds of things? Um, that's a question. And if you can't explain that, you may have a distorted perception of risk, which I think can befall even the, the most seasoned physician. They're not experts in thinking about low probability events. Anyway, when the public sees doctors behaving like total fools on Twitter towards each other and going with whichever way the wind blows, which is one week you're her best friend and one week you're against her, I think that's another thing that will severely rot trust in public health institutions and medicine. It will rot it like nothing you've ever seen. Between bad public health decisions, between not running cluster randomized trials and adjudicating uncertainty, which turns scientific issues into political issues, and between the sort of incivility and outright harassment of one another, we're going to end this. And it's going to be, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say. I feel terrible about it, but uh, um, it's going to be unspeakably bad. Unspeakably bad. I mean, I think 
the profession may have uh, almost be torn in two. It might be that the two sciences, two medicines, one is a branch of the Democrats and one is a branch of the Republicans. It might be that it fractures even more into different tribes with different kind of tribal views, um, that even within the Democrats, there's an aggressive, hyper-left group, and then there might be a more moderate group. I don't know. But I certainly think the net result will be the average American will be much less likely to trust the recommendation of a doctor for anything, much less likely to trust a public health advisor, even if something new is coming that is calamitous, much less likely to want to do anything about it. I think you have spent trust for almost a generation. What a screw up. How might we mend this? I mean, mending it is is not easy because, you know, once damaged, these things are very difficult to mend. But I think one would be, one would be if people started to admit some truths, one you know, what we know about natural immunity Two, what the evidence is for some things. And the truth about some things is to really say, I don't know, there's no good studies. Right now I see somebody on TV saying, we know, quote, we know that if I were an N95 on the plane and he's wearing a cloth mask, I have an additional benefit that's better than if he wasn't wearing the cloth mask. Do we know that? And if so, when did we know that? And what is the evidence that supports that claim? Because I think that claim is rather weak. I don't think there's evidence that shows that an N95 works better when worn on an individual if the other person is kind of wearing a cloth mask when they're not eating pretzels. I don't think that evidence exists. I don't think you ran any cluster randomized trials on airplanes or other public transportation vehicles or trains or buses. I don't think you ran any cluster randomized trials. I don't just think that. I know you didn't in any children. There's not a single one registered in clinicaltrials.gov. They're not registered. So very likely they don't occur. And I've not heard of anyone doing it. We ran zero such studies globally. When you run zero such studies, the best studies are probably the Spanish study, the, the study from Finland about masking kids. And both of those have entirely null effects. Um, and one has to go in with the pretest probability this was effective. And if you look at the body of literature there, and we're, we have published a working paper, um, a meta-analytic overview of this area, and we're going to publish that paper on a peer-reviewed journal soon. Uh, it's been accepted. Um, you see that the pretest probability is very low. And so the burden of proof is on the believers to show us. And now we're a couple years into this and they've not done any of that. Uh, that's going to be uh, leave a mark on trust. But if you want to regain the trust, you've got to admit all that. You have to basically take that Jacob, um, Jacob Russell and Dennis Patterson article in tablet called the mask debacle and concede that pretty much everything they said in there is 100% true. You also need to concede that some of these mandates were misaligned. The booster mandate that went aggressively went after young men and women in college, that wasn't the place to put the energy. We should have been going after a much older age group, and we didn't. You've got to admit up to many, many of the other failures, um, one of which is that you had an airplane mandate for so long while half of Europe has dropped it, and you never studied if it worked. You need to admit to the uncertainty. You need to say the truth, which is in a lot of these situations, we truly just didn't know. We don't know. And and we have a tension right now because people don't want to say the truth because they want people to do the policy. And the way to get them to do the policy is to oversell the certainty. And that is entirely self-defeating. And I think the only way is sort of an unreserved apology. And then the schools. You need to pay penance for the schools. You need to pay a deep penance because... You can't say you didn't know because you did know in that case that it was a bad, calamitous policy decision. I think pretty much the globe knew by early August 2020 that the trade-off was strongly in favor of keeping kids in school. And that's why most of Western Europe went back in the fall of 2020. Switzerland, the United Kingdom, they went back. We didn't in the United States. Not everywhere, preferentially in blue cities, preferentially in union stronghold cities. The damage from that is going to be so 
much bigger than anything else we're talking about. It's going to be the biggest domestic policy fiasco of our lifetime. You need to pay penance. You need to do a total uh, analysis of what happened. Any, any untoward influence on the CDC needs to be examined and investigated. Who is changing those CDC documents around schools? You need to investigate all of that, and you need a full report and a total apology. That might go some of the way. And then you need to acknowledge that government can be a useful tool, but if you put people in charge who are punch drunk on the powers of government and don't follow appropriate rules and regulations, that it can be misused. And I think we saw that with, you know, Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss getting ousted from FDA and then just runaway rubber stamping of EUAs for booster after booster without credible data. And that means we're forking Pfizer and Borla tens of billions of dollars, but we don't have evidence, really strong evidence to know which of these things, how many doses and in whom is really optimal. I think the dosing, kids, myocarditis, these things need apologies. They need some investigation to know, you know, who dropped the ball, why we weren't totally honest. Maybe then you might start to reclaim it. And then in terms of sort of the behavior of doctors, you know, if you're an anxious person who is not a student of health policy, maybe stay out of it. Maybe don't attack this person. Try to work on your own argument and see if you can craft it into an op-ed. Good luck to you. I'd like to see you do it, to see to see somebody write a persuasive op-ed of why mask mandates on airplanes should be continued or why toddler masking was a good idea. I'd love to see it. I've never seen a good one. I mean, I don't even think I've even seen one anybody try. Um, but try. You don't need to attack Lena Wen. You know, we don't need this doctor on doctor hate. We might concede, perhaps it is possible, that everybody is actually doing what they think is best for human welfare. It's just that some people are deeply misunderstand science. I think that's the truth. You know, the people who think, you know, toddler masking is a good idea, they may be seduced by aerosol studies. They may not understand that complex policy interventions, behavioral interventions on children generally have very modest effect size and compliance is generally very poor and it deteriorates with time. And this is just universal truth of biomedicine. So somebody coming in with sort of a background of a mechanistic science background, they can be totally miss the mark in terms of understanding policy. Somebody who's, you know, maybe in an anxious emotional state might totally miss the mark on school closures. They might think it's better just keep it closed, just be safe, just be safe. They might miss the fact that uh, there's no such thing as perfect safety. And by not putting kids in schools, you're taking a huge risk. You're playing with their whole future and their lives. And actually that risk blew up in your face and it's going to keep blowing up in your face. You're just going to see more and more damage from that. Um, I don't think they were ill-intentioned. I just think that they're not good at thinking about these issues. But there may have been some perverse influence along the way and, and that should be investigated. And there should be some acknowledgement. So those are my thoughts on this space. I wrote a Substack post on the doctor on doctor hate. I have... Um, uh, followed, uh, somewhat interested in the uh, response to the TSA mask mandate. I really think, you know, it's really quite something. People are really upset by it. But they weren't so upset by the eating pretzels up until this moment. Up until this moment, you could eat a bag of pretzels for 45 minutes and not wear that cloth mask. And I didn't hear a peep about it. I didn't hear any allegations that those people were killing babies. But yet I hear, I hear those allegations about dropping it entirely. And so there's some disconnect. There's some logical disconnect in the minds of these people. I, I just don't know what it is. Truly don't understand. Well, on that note, this is what you get on this channel. You get in a policy analysis uh, by someone who studies evidence-based medicine. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below, and uh, until next time. A federal judge in Florida has struck down this administration's 
TSA mask mandate. The airplane mask mandate has been struck down by a federal judge, and I think the terms of the striking have to do with the judge believes that Congress should make this rule, not the CDC. Okay, be that as it may, people are up in arms. There's a lot of consternation about this. But first, let's think about what the mandate was. Now, the current mask mandate is that if you're on an airplane, you need to wear a cloth mask. Well, except when you eat or drink something. When you eat or drink something, you don't need to wear it. And that could be a lengthy drink of soda or a bag of pretzels. So in an average airplane flight, and I've been on a bunch of flights recently, you might find that people have the mask down around their chin or off their face entirely for, you know, 45 minutes in coach. And even longer in first class because the meal takes quite a long time. And so you probably get a two-hour window of no mask in first class. When the lights dim, it's an overnight flight or it's an evening flight, then masks come off and no one's enforcing them. Half the time you look around, people's noses are hanging out or they got it as a chin strap. So I think that the actual use of this mask is very, very poor. The actual policy doesn't make a whole lot of sense because how well could it possibly work if you're only doing it for a tiny fraction of the time you're on the airplane? The other thing, the mask that you're allowed to use to sate the requirement is in fact a cloth mask. That's the mask that Turns out it doesn't do that much. It doesn't actually work. In a cluster randomized trial in Bangladesh, the cloth mask arm actually had no further reduction in SARS-CoV-2 versus no mask at all. This is a cluster randomized trial pre-vaccine and pre-natural infection. It doesn't do a whole lot. The current situation. The real question, the real reason to mandate some people mask is to protect other people. But other people can already do something if they so wish to protect themselves. And that's where a high quality N95 mask. You can wear such a mask. So if you're wearing the N95 and you're keeping it on for the whole flight, what's the additional benefit to you to compel the person in the seat next to you to wear a cloth mask, except when they eat or drink, and they could eat or drink for a fairly long time? And to me, the probability that you're gaining much from that is very, very low. So we have to acknowledge that from a public health standpoint, this intervention doesn't make a lot of sense. The next point, we've had vaccinations available for a year. And so, if you want, you could be vaccinated, you could be boosted, depending on how old you are, you could have gotten two boosters, you could have four doses in your arm. We are one year into this, and it also looks like people will eventually get breakthrough. And then the other thing is, the moment you step off the plane and you walk into any city, you'll find that a lot of cities are like Mardi Gras. People are having a fun old time, and they're gathering in large concert halls and venues, maskless, like the gridiron dinner, like all these politicians did. So the real question is, from a broader 30,000-foot view of public health, does this make a lick of sense? And the answer is, it doesn't even make sense. But worse, public health has never really actually tested it, because airplanes have great ventilation and filtration. Does wearing a cloth mask, even in a world where people weren't allowed to wear N90, or people weren't wearing N95s, of course they're always allowed to, but they may not have had them. In that world, did it actually slow the spread on the airplane? And the truth is, we don't know. We could have answered that question. We could have done a very simple cluster randomized control trial, answer that question. The CDC, there's no rule that says they can't actually generate data. You know, I like, I know they love to do their retrospective, confounded observational studies. There's no rule that says they can't actually do a good job and generate data. We never did that. We never generated that data. So the truth is we don't know. Enter the federal judge. The federal judge comes along and strikes it down and it's going to be appealed and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not a legal expert. And uh, I know people are up in arms. I say, who is this federal judge to unilaterally decide this policy? Well, you know, but who is the CDC to create a policy that's not based in any scientific evidence and continue it year after year without generating that evidence? And I had a thread that was really about public health. And people talk about, you know, what kind of 
power should public health have? And we can't let the law strip public health of its power. What if there's a future pandemic or catastrophe? And my point of view is simple. My point of view is public health has power, but it also has scientific responsibility. And it neglected the responsibility, so don't be surprised it loses the power. Here's my take. Pre-pandemic, I think you would find I was the most ardent proponent that public health agencies should have vast powers to do all sorts of things in public health emergencies to protect the greater good. And I truly believe that. But then we saw the COVID-19 pandemic, and they did do a lot of things to protect the public good. And I had no problem with that initially. But the problem I had was they didn't actually generate science. You see, you can implement a mask mandate on an airplane, but then you have a scientific obligation to study it, to learn, does it actually help or doesn't it help? You can implement a vaccine mandate, but you have some obligation to see, does it actually reduce spread? And if you learn that everyone will get a breakthrough anyway, does your vaccine mandate make sense? Does your vaccine passport for a restaurant make sense? It's separating people who can spread the virus from the people who can spread the virus. It doesn't actually make any sense. When you move to masking two-year-olds, I thought to myself, that's a bold move. It's against the World Health Organization, but surely they're going to run a cluster randomized trial to see if it actually works. But now we're two years later, and they didn't run any such study. So public health has failed. They failed on a number of fronts. They have pushed out two people at the FDA in the vaccine products division, and they've greenlit all these boosters. Those boosters may not have come to the U.S. market had it not been for the ousting of those two people, Marion Gruber and Phil Krause. We don't know, but they're on record repeatedly in op-eds saying that they're critical of this policy. That's the White House exerting political pressure and tampering with the FDA. We also see that they are debuting all these interventions from lockdown to mask mandates on planes to two-year-olds. They have some obligation to run studies. They never did. And then the final thing, once they authorized boosters, even for young men at young ages, colleges went ahead and carried, carried the baton the last mile. They mandated that. And so you had a situation where a 20-year-old man who had two doses and an Omicron infection was mandated by his school to get a booster, or he would be disenrolled from school, even if it was within, you know, even if he had had the Omicron 30 days before. That, to me, is an abuse of the public health power. And when public health abuses the power, then I think... We have to ask ourselves if they deserve that power. They've lost that, that responsibility. They've abused the power because they never generated scientific evidence. And so what I think should happen is post-COVID, we need a citizen's bill of rights, a bill of rights that says, listen, there's going to be emergencies that come forward. But, you know, we can't let that hospital decide that no one's allowed to visit a loved one unless they have extraordinary evidence that that actually protects other people. By the way, all these hospital visitation policies, they've not studied a single one in a well-done, prospective, randomized fashion. They've just implemented these things, this classic CYA, cover-your-ass kind of uh, medicine implemented by often bureaucrats. They are heartbreaking policies that separate people who are old, frail, sometimes confused, sometimes delirious from loved ones. And they do that because they're saying that slow spread. Do they have evidence that it's slow spread? We're going to publish a paper on this topic very shortly. We're going to publish a paper. We shall learn. Do they have evidence? Do they actually generate evidence? But I think you know the answer. They, they probably didn't do that much. They failed. They're abusing these powers. They're not generating evidence. And so then they're surprised that you know, some judge is going to strip them of some of those powers. Don't be surprised. That's what happens. That's what happens when you do this. So I think overall, the mandate, uh, I see people are very upset that the mask mandates have fallen on airplanes. They shouldn't be that upset because the reality is it probably wasn't doing that much to have somebody wear a mask that doesn't work for part of the time on the flight, uh, except when they eat or drink. 
Um, I saw somebody say, I think this was Jerome Adams, the former Surgeon General, he said that that mask mandate was also protecting the family that's taking their four-year-old child who has cancer, is getting chemotherapy, on a public bus. And now that child's on the public bus and the person next to them could be coughing COVID all over the child. I thought to myself, that's a horrible, you know, horrible hypothetical scenario. But think about it this way. If that person next to this child on the bus had a cloth mask on and the family felt like that was adequate protection for their child who's undergoing chemotherapy, I would say that that's a false sense of security. You don't need, you shouldn't be on that bus. We should be providing a system where this poor child and this poor vulnerable person who's going to get chemotherapy should not be on that bus. And making some of the passengers wear a flimsy cloth mask that doesn't work in a poorly ventilated bus is a false sense of security. And maybe now it's not great, but at least it's all obvious to everyone that there is no security on that bus. And this person should be in a private transportation vehicle with the windows down, et cetera, et cetera. We need to work on that. And there are a number of ways in which we can do that in, in a clinical situation, even for patients who are have uh, limited resources. There are such things. Um, but my point is that that anecdote, um, although vivid, is uh, not really representative. The real question is, are these policies slowing spread broadly? And you can tell a story, but public health and science isn't a series of anecdotes. It's evidence, and you have to generate evidence. Do these policies actually slow spread? I really worry that this Jerome Adams story, that kid may be more vulnerable for being on the bus thinking that flimsy cloth mask is protecting the kid, and, the, and they may be misled by that. So my overall thoughts here <clears throat> are, you know, do I know the perfect world in which judges should be adjudicating this? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that public health has lost some of their, their credibility. They've lost their credibility by pushing policies that were clearly contradicted by common sense and not generating evidence while they pushed those policies. You know, if they pushed those policies and run the trials and found they worked or didn't work, I would be happy. They pushed the policies and they keep pushing them year after year and they never generated the evidence. And that is inexcusable. And this mandate has fallen, but very likely this mandate didn't do that much. And also, the truth is, the average person in the street we don't know what they think, but I suspect they're probably pretty happy that they don't have this mandate. The person who wants to can continue to wear whatever mask they want on this flight, or they can continue to seek other com more comfortable modes of, of transportation. But the speed with which the airlines drop the mandate and sort of the cries of jubilation that have already been sort of reported suggest that a lot of people don't like this policy. And they can see through a policy where you pull the mask down and you eat a bag of pretzels as slow as humanly possible. They can see through that policy that it just don't make sense. So if you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Until next time.